Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle.
Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? 
Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Before the pandemic, in the old times, in the pre-pandemic times, I suppose, retail workers accounted for 6% of the total U.S. labor force. I'm saying pre-pandemic times here because despite being designated as essential workers in most areas of retail, the employment of retail workers was all over the place in 2020, starting at an all-time high in the beginning of the year, plummeting for a few months there, and then ultimately finishing out a little bit lower by the end of the year. But regardless of what you've heard about e-commerce killing in-person shopping or all of those dark tales of the retail apocalypse, all of those amazing photos of abandoned malls, one of my favorites, it's actually something that Dustin and I bonded over when we first met. (laughs) Despite all of that, in 2018, 9.8 million workers had jobs as cashiers, retail salespeople, or first-line supervisors of retail salespeople, you know, like a shift supervisor. And that was actually an increase from 9.6 million in 2010. So we've actually seen an increase in retail workers as more and more stuff has been bought online. I thought that was pretty interesting. And working retail is almost a universal experience here in the United States, with over 60% of all workers having held a frontline retail job early in their careers. Basically, More than half of the people who are working today in the United States have worked retail at one point or another. Well, who works retail? I guess I've already spoiled it all by saying a lot of people have, right? I know a lot of us tend to believe that it's high school students or college students that are working retail, but wow, that's a huge logical fallacy right there because... How would these stores be open during school hours, right? Retail workers do tend to be younger, but in the grand scheme of things, like as in young in comparison to the entire lifespan of one's life, right? They aren't as young as you think is what I'm saying. Over half of all retail workers were ages 16 to 34. So not exactly teenagers, right? Because in fact, the median age of retail workers is, are you ready for it? 40, four zero. And only 20% of retail workers are actually under 24. What else? You're probably not surprised to hear this, but women are more likely to work in retail jobs. More than half of all retail workers are women. Not surprised at all there. Retail workers are also more likely to live in poverty. In 2018, more than 10% of retail workers lived below the poverty line. And maybe 10% doesn't sound like a lot to you, but in contrast, only 6% of all workers, so all people in the United States who have jobs, live in poverty. So we see substantially more retail workers living in poverty. 
That probably doesn't surprise you then to hear that retail workers are more likely to also have Medicaid. In 2018, 15% of retail workers had Medicaid compared to 9% of the total workforce. It becomes more concerning when you learn that about one in 10 retail workers, that's 10%, has a child under five. Unsurprisingly, retail workers aren't paid well. The average hourly wage is a whopping $10.00. And 10 cents. In 2018, the median earnings for full time year round cashiers were $22,000, compared with about $35,000 for full time year round retail salespeople and $42,000 for their supervisors, but like the first line supervisors. So we're talking these shift supervisors, department managers. You're like, well, I don't know, Amanda. What is that? Is is that good or bad? Well, let me tell you this. The median earnings for all full-time year-round workers in the United States was more than $48,000 in 2018. So your average cashier is making less than half of that. And let's be clear here, because notice how I kept emphasizing the words full-time Getting consistent full-time hours in retail is pretty hard, especially when it comes to working in smaller specialty stores, clothing stores, stores you see at the mall. My research into just how many people are working full-time in retail led me to totally different statistics, ranging from 20 to 30% of all retail workers being full-time. But you have to remember Grocery stores are a part of that. Department stores, all of the big box stores that you can imagine, lumped in with all the chains you see at the mall, right? And so I was unable to dig deeper than that. I know when I was working retail for a large specialty retailer, only about a quarter of our staff, which was roughly, I want to say, 40 to 50 people, was actually full-time, It was basically the team leads and the department managers. We had a receiver. We had a merchandiser. Everyone else was part-time. I'll tell you this as a person who has worked a lot of retail, who has a lot of friends who worked retail for a long time, who has a lot of conversations about what it means to work retail in the past few years. There are less full-time jobs than ever. This means less access to benefits like health insurance, paid time off, 401k, all of it. Scheduling is all over the place, which means it's harder to have a second job or attend school. Hours are inconsistent, which means you can't budget. And then of course, there's the scourge. These are the worst. On-call shifts, which mean that workers are only notified the night before or a few hours in advance whether they need to come in for a shift. This means it's hard to schedule a babysitter. Remember, 10% of those retail workers have a child under five. You can't make doctor's appointments, although you probably don't have health insurance to see a doctor. You just generally can't live your life. Retail work is hard. It pays poorly. And somehow, because many people need to feel power over someone, and that often involves punching down, it involves a lot of cruelty and degradation from customers. It's time for us to talk about retail workers.
Close Horse, the podcast that always dreaded having to clean up the sales section at the end of the night. You never know what you're going to find in the sales section. It's a lot of Jamba Juice, among other things. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 84. I'm just going to go ahead and say right off the bat that I see this as an ongoing conversation about retail workers. It's very important to me. So I want to hear from all of you. Do you have thoughts or stories about your experiences working retail that you would like to share? Send them my way, either via email, calling the Close Horse Hotline, or recording a voice memo on your phone or computer. You can find all the information for doing that in the show notes. I'm going to share a couple messages today, but it's just not even enough for me because I feel very strongly that we just don't talk about retail workers enough. They are invisible. Even for all of the attention, and I, I would say all of the attention in quotes with quite a bit of irony that essential workers got during the pandemic, that didn't mean retail workers per se. And it didn't mean that those workers were paid well or treated well or protected. Because even though these workers were designated as essential, they weren't treated as if their work or their lives meant very much. You all know I've been wanting to talk about retail workers for a long time. And like I said, I hope to do a lot more episodes about this in the future. But I finally got the kick in the butt this week after reading an article in the Washington Post that declared, quote, get ready to be dazzled here. Or blown away, perhaps. Maybe not dazzled. That's too positive. Anyway, 649,000 retail workers put in their notice in April, the industry's largest one-month exodus since the Labor Department began tracking such data more than 20 years ago. For all of you who didn't have your calculator handy, that's about 7% of all retail workers quitting all at once. In the same article, 23-year-old Island Potts was quoted as saying, it was a really dismal time and it made me realize this isn't worth it. My life isn't worth a dead-end job. To make matters worse for retailers, they're in a bind in terms of manpower right now because while general merchandise stores like Target and Walmart and then grocery stores were deemed essential and had very strong sales, through 2020 because they did in fact offer essential things, less essential businesses like clothing saw a marked drop off and laid off tons of workers. Now they want them back as people are back to spending money again. In fact, the retail industry had 1 million job openings in April, but nobody wants these jobs. They don't pay, they're unreliable. You don't know if you're going to be able to actually pay your rent with it. It's dangerous and you don't feel safe. You don't feel protected and you don't feel valued. So these retailers who, to be brutally honest, have always viewed their workforce as pretty much disposable, have decided that they're going to do better to lure people in. That sounds great, right? They're thinking, hey, How about some slight raises of a couple dollars? How about free appetizers at work? What? I don't even understand that one. Maybe some tuition assistance, but like not more than $3,000. 
ever, which maybe would pay for your books. I don't even know. (sighs) Loud, dramatic sigh. Because going back to this Washington Post article, quote, we're seeing a wider understanding that these were never good jobs and they were never livable jobs, said Rebecca Given, a professor of labor studies and employment relations at Rutgers University. In many cases, the pay is below a living wage and the hours are inconsistent and insufficient. If anything, the pandemic has made retail jobs even less sustainable than they already were. And to be fair, there was a time, you have to travel way back in time, where a retail job would have been a sustainable career. But as we've talked about here in the past, wages haven't kept up with inflation and productivity. Your money goes a lot less further than it used to. If the minimum wage had kept pace with inflation and productivity, it would be $25 per hour. And right now, as a reminder, we have retail workers making an average of $10.10 per hour. That's not even half. That is the very definition right there of a non-living wage, right? Retail isn't a good job in 2021, and it hasn't been for a long time. Where are the wages, the daycare assistants, the consistent scheduling, paid time off, a sense of security and safety. No, instead, we have Walmart giving new hires paperwork about how to apply for SNAP benefits and Medicaid because these companies would rather that taxpayers help these employees stay afloat than actually pay them a living wage, actually give them full-time hours and benefits. The care for retail workers hasn't been there for a long time. It wasn't even there when I was working retail in the aughts. Honestly, I don't know when retail was a livable job because even when I worked retail in high school, I wanna say I made $4.35 an hour. Fordham law professor Susan Scafidi pointed out in a separate article I read about from a few years ago. It was from Fashionista. It was all about the cruelty of on-call shifts. She pointed out that retail workers haven't ever historically, in her opinion, been a respected, cared-for group. She says, quote, in retail, particularly in in inexpensive big box stores, employees are very easily replaced. There isn't a big concern about living wages, vacation time, and other compassionate leave, so employers have not been under pressure to offer amenities in the workplace the way they might if they were competing for tech workers in Silicon Valley. I think that's really interesting because our society as a whole and these employers don't value retail workers even though their work is directly responsible for the profits those companies are making. And I'll just say this, a company that doesn't care for its retail workers, doesn't care for its garment workers, it doesn't care for its warehouse workers, and it probably doesn't even care about its corporate workers like buyers, designers, planners, accountants, etc. This disregard for workers is systemic within the retail industry. If we want 
to lift up all workers, if we all want to have a better experience at work and be treated well and paid well and feel safe and secure, we have to start with protecting and lifting up retail workers. In today's episode, we're really going to focus on the respect and care of retail workers and the ways in which that's just not happening. This is a massive topic and we won't cover it all here today, but I look at this as a start of a larger conversation. If you're a longtime regular listener, then you know that I started my career in retail. First as a part-time seasonal sales associate who worked in the fitting rooms for hours and hours and all caps, hours. You know, you think, if you haven't done that before, that it sounds like an easy job and then you do it. You stand on your feet on a concrete floor for eight hours or longer. You count items in and out of the fitting rooms. You inspect each room before and after for signs of theft, like discarded security tags, because you will get fired if someone steals in the fitting rooms while you're working there and you need that job. You argue with customers who want to exceed the maximum of five items. You break up the occasional and very misguided, probably very disappointing makeout session. You deal with piles of clothes that need to be hung, folded, Occasional encounters with puddles of pee or poopy clothes. It's hard work. And customers are mean because even they somehow know that you are so unimportant, so disposable, that you're here working the worst station in the store. And you know, I did that for a long time. And then I moved up to department manager, which meant on the positive side, I now had a salary and benefits, but it also meant that my job expected that I would work as many hours as needed, regardless of the limitations of daycare and my own physical constitution, which sometimes was like, I can't do this anymore. I often worked until midnight and went back in at 6 a.m. It took me 45 minutes to ride my bike each way, so you can calculate there not very much sleep. I worked 10 or 12 or even 14 hour shifts, depending on what season it was. Were we doing a floor set? Was there a hot sale? Had someone called off? Sometimes my feet would just randomly bleed. Fortunately, after a couple of years of this, I was sort of discovered by corporate leadership and I was recruited to be a buyer back in the corporate headquarters on the East Coast. When I got to the corporate headquarters, I found out that I was the first person in 10 years who had been brought from the stores to the headquarters. And I realized pretty rapidly that all eyes were on me. Even my new boss assumed that I was probably going to fail because the widely held assumption in that office and probably across all corporate offices was that people from the stores were less intelligent, less competent, and overall just less worthy. Classism in all caps. I look back now at the interview process and I realize that a lot of the questions I was asked were 
very thinly veiled references to the alleged incompetence of retail workers. Like, will you be able to adapt to the professional communication necessary in an office setting? Oh, no. I mean, we only communicate in grunts and profanity in the store. I don't know. Will you miss running around all day, sitting at a desk and doing more intellectual work? Might be a tough adjustment. Um... I don't know if this is a good time to mention this, but my feet do suddenly randomly bleed. (laughs) Of course I can handle not being on my feet all day. Are you okay with a job that is less physical and more mental? I mean, I'm not even going to touch that one. That one's just insulting, right? Six months into my job, when everyone realized that I was actually, and I'm I'm not going to be humble about this, really good at buying... (laughs) The questions turn to, hey, how did you end up working in a store when you're so competent and skilled at other things? Um, it's called needing to eat dummies, okay? And just to be clear, with a few not so notable exceptions, my coworkers in the store were super smart, funny, creative, so talented, so passionate literally the coolest people I've worked with in my life. Everyone was working on something really rad outside of work. There was always someone's art show to go see or go watch their band. In fact, I met most of my closest friends, still my closest friends, working in that store. And I was actually really disappointed by how uncool and uncreative a lot of my coworkers in buying were. No one was playing music or being in the roller derby or making cool art. Most of my buying coworkers didn't even vote or follow current events. It was wild to me. I thought we'd all be sitting around being super cool and talking about politics and listening to NPR, but also wearing sick outfits. And I, I was disappointed. They were pleasantly surprised by me. I was disappointed by them. After a successful year in the buying department, the talent acquisition department had me start going to different store locations to talk to the staff about careers in the corporate office. Suddenly, it was seeming like maybe we weren't all a bunch of dum-dums who couldn't speak clearly. And it felt so good to be around my people. But I would also be super blunt with them. You will miss the camaraderie. It's lonely. You will miss the teamwork, the inside jokes, the singing while you fold clothes, going out dancing after a perfect close. That's such a good feeling. By the way, for all of you non-retail people, a perfect close, and that's C-L-O-S-E, not clothes, like the plural of clothing. A perfect close is when the store staff makes everything look perfect at the end of the night, refolding everything, lining up the size tape on the denim. All of the hangers face the same direction. Everything is unblemished, untouched. It's a museum of a store, a store where no one has ever shopped, where no one, no one definitely has ever stowed a bloody tampon and a pair of tried on and discarded skinny jeans, a store where no one has ever spent 30 minutes in the corner fitting room chopping off the security tags of $500 worth of clothing with a toolkit that they stole from Walgreens just an hour ago. It is a perfect store usually either because the merchandiser has to take photos in the morning or because, quote, important visitors are arriving the next day. And it's hard 
work. It's a late night. We're talking two, three, four hours of just making the store look perfect. My store and our store merchandiser, who I will add, like to call me a slut in front of my coworkers as often as possible. I'm, I'm retroactively pissed about that. She was obsessed with perfect closes. She and the store manager thought it was good for the staff to have to do it. And so we had a perfect close every single Sunday night. It was brutal. But back to my job recruiting others to come and work at the corporate headquarters, it kind of fizzled out, you know, maybe because of the recession. I'll never know. But I saw very few people make that jump to the corporate headquarters because they're just aren't that many opportunities for advancement in retail. You can become a department manager. You can become a store manager. A few of you will become a district manager. Even less of you will become regional managers. And that's it. It's not a long trajectory, and there aren't a lot of jobs. There just aren't many opportunities. And our first message, which is anonymous and shall be read by me, is from a retail worker who struggled to get ahead. At Buffalo Exchange. My experience with Buffalo Exchange was a mixed one, full of ups and downs. I was with the company for two years, and I started off as an entry-level buyer and worked my way up to assistant manager, then to store manager. I wanted to work my way up with the community that I had grown to love. While I was an assistant manager, I transferred from my home store to a store that was a longer commute, just so I could train under a store manager that was more experienced all to further my career with Buffalo Exchange. I got along very well with my area manager at the time. She promoted me, she trained me, and she really made me feel like I was an important part of the Buffalo Exchange company. My experience with Buffalo Exchange started going negatively when my area manager left the company and was replaced with the store manager that got promoted to area manager. She was newly promoted, and I think she wanted to come off as tough and hard. She never got to know me as an employee or a person. She just came in and was very disrespectful to me and my staff. She told me that she didn't see me as a leader and she wanted me to step down. At the time, I was shocked because I'd never gotten that kind of feedback from my previous area manager and I told her I would work harder and I wanted to do my best. She was cold and very unforgiving. She knew I had only been in my role for a few months and didn't take the time to properly train me. She was extremely disrespectful towards my team and I. I particularly remember one instance where she told one of my buyers to clean the glass on the door to the entrance of the store. This employee was a black woman and she walked up to her with a bottle of Windex and a towel and threw it in her face and said, clean the smudges. My employee later told me that it made her feel belittled and that in that moment, she wanted to burst into tears. She said, this woman, this white woman, will never understand how her actions made her feel in that moment. I wish at the time I would have said something. I was dealing with so much. I was trying to prove to this woman that I deserved my position. I also had the fear of getting fired or demoted hanging over me. There were countless days that I did 12-hour shifts when I really should have been there for eight hours and was only paid for eight hours. About a month or two later, I had enough of her belittling, being fake, and talking down to me that I put my two weeks notice in. I stayed my full two weeks and worked as hard as I could for my last weeks, and before my last day, she had my replacement. 
She had an assistant manager that was going to be promoted to my spot, come to visit the store, and do a full shift before my last day. I understand that she wanted to get her acclimated to the area and into the new store. However, the newly promoted manager couldn't even start at my store for another month. You think she would have had the respect or decency to wait until I left the company to bring in my replacement. Not to mention my replacement was her former assistant manager from her old store. Now five of six store managers in the area were white. I got a lot of experience from that job, which I'm very grateful for. But the way she treated us, a store predominantly of minorities, was unforgivable and hurtful. Myself and a few other employees said these things in our exit interview, and nothing was done. They told one of my former employees that these grievances couldn't be proved, so therefore there was nothing they could do. This saddens me, but I'm not surprised. This experience taught me that one bad leader can impact a whole business. After I left, two other managers got pushed out as well. It took me a while to recover from this experience. I had to rebuild my confidence as a leader because for a long time after this, I didn't feel like I was good enough to be in a manager position again. But now I can reflect back and realize that I wasn't the problem. I am a strong, creative, hardworking person, and any company would be lucky to have me. I just want to say that I know who this anonymous message is from, and that person is super rad, and most definitely any company would be very lucky to have them. I have so many feelings about this message. I almost don't know where to begin. I guess to start with, do exit interviews ever accomplish anything? If you work in HR or have worked in HR, could you let me know? I'm totally serious. This came up in an Instagram story conversation a couple weeks ago where I asked people what dumb work thing would they like to cancel? And exit interviews came up a lot. And the widely held belief that exit interviews don't accomplish anything. So if you work in that area, please reach out to me. I have a lot of questions. Some are about exit interviews. But speaking of human resources, I'll just say that in my experience, HR in retail stores is dodgy at best. For example, this is an extreme one, the chain that employed me did not have an HR department. Instead, you were supposed to go to your manager with any issues or you could call a hotline number to report theft or harassment. In other companies, there might be a distant corporate HR department, but there's no one in your store that you can really consult. Maybe in a large big box store, there would be. I I can't speak to that because I don't have that experience there and I couldn't really find the answer on the internet. So if you've worked for a big box place like Target or Walmart or Best Buy or something, and you had someone in-house who worked on HR, will you reach out and let, tell me about it? I have questions. I always have questions. So yeah, there's no one to really talk to about growing your career or issues you had with coworkers or your, your manager. And certainly no one who you would feel comfortable sitting down for a conversation about racism and discrimination you are witnessing. And I, I'm just going to say, just based on the message I just read you, that I feel very strongly that racism was at play there. Let's think about racism within the retail industry. We know that many retail chains are notorious for racially profiling Black customers. This has been happening 
forever. We read a lot more about it last year. I'm sure it hasn't ended. I'm sure all the places that are practicing it haven't been publicly called out. We know about the term shopping while black. And if you don't, go Google it. Go Google it right now. You have to ask yourself, if retailers are pushing employees in stores to profile and follow black customers, how are they not discriminating on the basis of race when it comes to hiring and promotions? According to the U.S. Census Bureau, Black workers comprised almost 13% of the retail workforce in 2018, compared to about 11% of the total American workforce. Latinx workers were almost 19% of the retail workforce, about 18% of the total workforce. What's that mean? In case you just heard a bunch of percentages and kind of dozed off there. Black and Latinx workers are making up a greater proportion of the retail workforce versus the regular workforce. So once again, we know that retailers are being called out for for racist behaviors within their stores, from Sephora to Nike to Anthropology to Zara. A casual Google just brought up those results. There's many, many more. So knowing that, how can retailers be treating their workers fairly when it comes to opportunities? Why don't these workers have the respect and care that access to mentoring and true human resources would bring? I'm just going to say it again. The average age of the retail workforce in the U.S. is 40. These are adults. This is not a high school part-time job for so many workers. And they need access to career growth. They need to be able to speak out about what they're experiencing at work. Something that the writer of this message said really sticks with me, and I'm going to read it again. I wish at the time I would have said something. I was dealing with so much. I was trying to prove to this woman that I deserved my position. I also had the fear of getting fired or demoted hanging over me. I think a lot of us can relate to that feeling no matter where we work. But man, in retail, I've never seen so many demotions, so many write-ups for being one minute late or going to the bathroom too many times. I had a boss talk to me because I'd had two doctor's appointments in two weeks for an ear infection, and she wondered if maybe I just wasn't interested in my job anymore. And I felt nervous that I was going to lose my job because I have crappy ears. (laughs) You know, I was really stressed. I stopped going to the doctor, even though my ears weren't getting better, because I didn't want to lose my job. This is the kind of environment, the circumstances, the treatment that retail workers experience on the daily basis. Absolutely no job security whatsoever. I know that I saw all kinds of messed up stuff happening around me in that store, from sexual harassment to bullying to just plain violation of labor laws. And I had no one to talk to about it. And I needed that job. God, I had a manager who was so obsessed with the idea that we might be hanging out outside of work that she would drive around the city looking for evidence of us all hanging out together so she could write us up. This is the job, which I mentioned on Instagram, where if you if you told someone how much you were being paid, you could be fired, which, by the way, is also illegal. None of us knew that. 
I didn't have anyone to talk to about any of this stuff, and I needed that job. I did not want to jeopardize it, because retail keeps you desperate by keeping you broke and tired, just like Susan Massey and I discussed a few episodes ago. It's hard to grow a career in retail, to move up the ladder, to actually make a living. It's hard to get those coveted full-time positions. And then there are weird things that stand in the way, like credit checks for promotions. As I've mentioned on the podcast in the past, in order to become a register aide in my store, which meant that I could do returns and ring up employee purchases, and it came with a $1 raise. God, I needed that raise. But my credit check wasn't good enough, and I just couldn't get promoted because in the minds of my employer, bad credit equals a tendency towards stealing. We've talked about this before, and I will definitely be coming back to it, but retailers are obsessed with this idea that their retail workers want to steal, will steal, and must be stopped at all costs, even if those measures are demoralizing and humiliating. As I mentioned in my conversation in episode 69 with Alex of St. Evans, the chain that employed both of us would make us dump our bags, pull out our pockets, and lift up the cuffs of our pants to show that we weren't stealing anything before we could leave the store, whether leaving for a shift or leaving for a break. If you skipped that, it was grounds for immediate termination. We would go through this ritual of being, quote, checked out, that's what they called it, in front of the store, at the front door, in front of customers. And you know what? It was fucking humiliating. One time I had a pregnancy test in my bag and the manager made a big deal about it for weeks. How is that very public violation of my privacy okay? How is it anything but classist and disrespectful? We're going to talk a little bit later about how customers can be so terrible to retail workers, but I have to say, if you see a company dehumanizing its employees right at the store entrance, of course it's going to be a lot easier to be rude and cruel to them because their own employer doesn't trust them or respect them. Why should you? Our next message is also anonymous and read by me. Should I do an audiobook? Should that be my new career path, reading audiobooks? <laughs> Probably not. I'm terrible at reading aloud. But this message, ignore me, it deals with more rude and dehumanizing behavior. I recently quit my job of over eight years back in February of 2021. I managed a resale store and I loved it so much until I didn't. I got hired as an associate manager, and I had never worked in clothing retail before, but had always loved clothes. I had fun at work, and I enjoyed my job, but there were things occasionally that bothered me. My boss would make comments to other employees about their bodies, or more specifically, their size. This person made so many people upset and uncomfortable about their size by talking about what would or wouldn't fit them. They would show someone something they should try on, but it was always either way too big or way too small. They on occasion pushed employees to try things on during their shifts to show us, and there were a few breakdowns in the fitting rooms. This person was also an overt flirt with customers and would overshare about their personal life, as in sitting down counting out people's cash drawers at the end of the night and using them as a trapped audience to go into more detail about their personal dating life. I was constantly put in difficult situations and had many people confide in me about how uncomfortable they felt. 
I always encouraged people to speak up to this manager or to higher ups. It wasn't until this person was no longer my boss that I realized why people were hesitant to speak to someone about it. I had been having lots of issues with this person undermining me to staff and questioning my decisions. I had tried to rise above it and make Michelle Obama proud, but one day they went too far. I was very loudly reprimanded by this person on the sales floor in front of my staff and customers. And keep in mind that they were not my boss at this point. I was fuming, but I kept calm until I could walk off the sales floor and reach out to my boss. At that point, my boss agreed with me, but they ultimately decided that this was a personal issue and we would need to work it out together. This was very much the beginning of the end of my time there as it made me realize how much they didn't care about me or my success. There were many more instances that helped me make this decision, but I just couldn't work near this person anymore and I have never regretted it or looked back. This message is just another example of the lack of resources that retail workers have when they're dealing with problematic coworkers and managers. And I believe that is another reason why so many retail workers are finally saying, hey, guess what? Take this job and shove it because they know they deserve better. It's interesting. Okay, well, maybe not interesting, but just sad that working in retail can just decimate your self-esteem. You don't feel like you deserve better, that you deserve respect. You already deal with customers being rude and cruel, but then you can't count on your employer to protect you, to advocate for you. Because not only does the company believe the customer is always right, it also believes that the retail worker is disposable and not worth supporting and probably wrong. (laughs) Wow, that is so depressing to say out loud. This is reminding me of another aspect of retail that I swear my brain had blocked out due to trauma until Laura of Shop Journal reminded me of it last week, and that is mystery shoppers. If you've worked retail, then you know what I'm talking about, and you can feel your blood pressure rising. Essentially, Mystery shoppers are paid by retailers to go to stores and observe the state of the store, the smiliness of the staff, the number of times they were greeted, and grade the fitting room purchase and return experience. They're also called secret shoppers. And what they are is essentially surveillance. And apparently it's a billion dollar business. So lots of companies are using this service. I wanted to see if anyone out there was talking about how stressful and unfair the mystery shopper model is. And kind of surprising to me, no one's really writing about it. But I did find one amazing essay from the new inquiry called The Secret Shopper. It says, quote, As long as workers are forced to smile, politely greet customers, and point them toward a special deal, capital will need to send out mystery shoppers to keep them in line. Mystery shoppers are workaday spies, moms cruising the mall with an eye to shelf organization and timely welcome greetings. They are the frontline grunts in corporate espionage, the preferred objective parties for internal corporate performance evaluation, and data gatherers for marketing firms. 
wow, that's the best description I've ever read. Well, it's the only one I've ever read because no one's writing about this kind of blows my mind. Like I said, it's a billion dollar industry. So what's the deal with the mystery shop? Well, at my company, it was a big deal. And it happened every month. Our store's score would determine whether or not we could get our quarterly bonus, get promotions and raises. Oh yeah, it was a part of your performance review score. Even if we might get the budget to have a holiday party. And if the score was low, and somehow it always was, We would get screamed at by the district managers. There would be write-ups for everyone who worked that day. And generally, everyone would be miserable about it. Just talking about this is giving me a stomachache. Mystery shoppers are the worst. The thing was, sometimes the mystery shopper would give us a bad score just because they didn't like the store and its product offering. It had nothing to do with the state of the store or who was working that day. One shopper said, and I still laugh about this many years later, everything this store sells is stupid, and I can't understand why anyone would shop here. Well, we got a low score just because of that, and we couldn't appeal it. No bonuses for any of us. Who are these mystery shoppers? According to the new inquiry essay, quote, Predominantly middle or lower class people, mystery shoppers are frequently stay-at-home moms looking to supplement their spouse's income or part-time workers hoping to enjoy some of the smaller luxuries, like eating out without worrying about expense. Many retirees do it for extra cash while staying busy and mentally sharp, and less frequently, so do young people for whom a little money goes a long way. Shoppers on message boards and in interviews I conducted describe mystery shopping as something between a part-time job and a hobby. In short, mystery shoppers are mostly people traditionally considered to be outside the workforce. The essay goes on to say, you also end up with some pretty nasty class dynamics. Upper middle class execs hire middle class retirees and moms to do intricate surveillance on minimum wage or near employees for pennies on the dollar. I gotta say, retail workers live in fear of the mystery shopper. It leads to a general feeling of fear when dealing with all customers. Will this be the one who missed my joke and gives me a bad score? Did they hear me greet them? Will they think the store looks neat enough? Oh my gosh, what if there was clothing on the floor in the sales section? Retailers don't trust their workers, even their managers, to run an effective, customer-pleasing experience, so they create a culture of fear, the fear that they might be caught messing up at any moment. And speaking of trust, next we have a message from Megan. Yes, she's calling it in. You don't have to hear me reading it. And she's going to talk about some other super uncool retail stuff. And she added, yes, I was absolutely in the liquor store parking lot when recording this, needed to re-up my Bud Light seltzer stock. I just want to let you all know, I've been drinking a lot more Michelob Ultra Seltzer lately. They have some really good flavors. Check it out. They're very light and refreshing. This podcast is not sponsored by Michelob Ultra Seltzer, but I kind of wish it were. (laughs) Let's give this message a listen. Hi, Amanda. This is Meg, long-time listener, first-time caller. 
I'm just listening to your newest episode, episode 69, <laughs> about um, retail working and employee discounts and all of that jazz. And I just had to stop and call and give you a firsthand story about the worst employee discount situation that I ever experienced. Um, I worked in retail in a number of different businesses and locations, and the worst experience I've ever had by far was working at Macy's about a decade ago. And when I worked at Macy's, in order to even get the employee discount, you had to have a store credit card. And if you were not eligible and you had bad credit, you had to get a prepaid card and put money on that card in order to get the store employee discount, which is crazy to me. And it's not the only place that I've worked where you had to have a store credit card to do that, but it was definitely the most predatory as they were notorious for adding one penny to your bill after you paid so that way you would continue owing a balance month to month and they could charge you interest. Um, it was an ongoing issue for employees and customers alike. However, another situation that happened at that same location is we had a situation where we were, it was a very small area in an older mall, a lot of empty stores. It was really hard to meet the sales goals that were set for us. And I worked in cosmetics at that time, so I did have a sales goal, and I had to reach that every single month, as did, obviously, the whole store. And the managers at that store were very, very pushy about ensuring that we always changed the price of something if someone complained or said it should be on sale or said it was cheaper somewhere else. And we as employees had that ability, which in hindsight seems like probably not a great idea, but we could change the price of anything if someone complained. And we were always, always instructed by management to do so in order to get the sale and ensure that we made our sales goals because it was so hard to do that. And about... A year in, um, I had a situation where corporate came in to review the store and the sales and all of the employees. And the day that they came in, they took all of the employees from many departments, including many from cosmetics and also the department that my husband, my now husband, works worked at and interviewed them and accused all of them of stealing and of giving discounts to their friends and their family by manually changing those prices of those things. And just like you've talked about many times, none of these people were giving discounts to their friends and their family. They were being told by management to manually adjust these prices per the request of the customer and were given the right to do so. And not one manager stuck up for any of these employees, and they all got fired that day, including my now husband, including others that worked with me in cosmetics that were probably some of the best salespeople in the entire store, all because management wouldn't stand up for them and say that we had been changing prices from their instruction and let them all get fired. And 
that situation has just never sat right with me. It's been really upsetting continuously. I still think about it to this day, obviously. And, you know, I've been thinking about that for a while when listening to Close Horse and this episode just, it jumped out at me and I had to just call and leave you a quick message to let you know. And I certainly hope that any of your listeners that are still working in retail positions like that in big corporate companies, that you are getting more support and more better better compensation from your employers because you deserve it and we know that you're not trying to steal and be shady and it's likely the company that is actually doing that. Thanks so much, Amanda. Bye. Wow. Well, first off, thank you, Meg, for calling in because both of the stories in your message are super important. And I am obviously super excited to use them as a jump off for some research I did. <laughs> of course, of course, right? I love a research project. I was blown away by the ridiculousness of the idea that one might need to have a credit card from one's employer in order to use the employee discount. And well, wouldn't you know it, I found the Macy's Employee Handbook online, and it says, quote, to receive an associate discount, you must be approved for either a Macy's or Bloomingdale's credit or prepaid account. Wow. <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say here that the discount is also only 10 to 20% off, which is kind of stingy when compared with the typical 40% that a lot of clothing retailers offer. But as you may know, if you listen to episode 69, retailers still make a ton of profit off of selling to their employees, and they actually rely on sales to employees to meet revenue targets. So the employee discount is almost somewhat predatory, but then requiring them to have a special credit card or prepaid card to use it, I mean, that is next level. And one more reason that I don't want to shop at Macy's. <sighs> Meg's message is also a great introduction to the next part of the conversation about retail work. And that is retailers' obsession with employee theft to the point where it becomes cruel, humiliating, and dehumanizing. Yes, retail math I talk about it here a lot, is concerned with sales and it's concerned with profit margin. But it's also always keeping an eye on something called shrink. Shrink is the amount of inventory that is lost each month, each year. This loss shrinks your profit. That's how you can look at it. And shrink has three causes, internal, external, and paperwork. Can you tell what a great retail drone I am by the ease with which I rattled those off? <laughs> I'm going to go in reverse explaining these three, and it'll make sense when I get to the end. So the first one we're going to talk about is paperwork, which means errors. Back in the day, that would literally mean someone counting incorrectly or writing the wrong number on some kind of chart that probably was on a clipboard, but now it tends to refer to system errors, like computer errors, right? Perhaps an order was accidentally received twice, either human error or computer error. Maybe the system isn't deducting or adding inventory properly. Trust me, this has happened to me an 
the buying end at multiple jobs at companies of all sizes. The thing about the paperwork aspect of shrink is that it can be massive. Actually, this one can swing your shrink the most. At one job, we were missing about $500,000 worth of inventory, and it turned out that it was a system issue. External, the next cause of shrink, means shoplifting. And while it might seem like retailers are still pretty obsessed with that, hence all of the security tags and alarms at the door, over time they've moved away from it a little bit because it often would lead to injured store employees and lawsuits from customers who had been accused of stealing. Don't get me wrong. Those security tags and alarm stanchions at the front door They cost some serious money, but so did the lawsuits and other repercussions that retailers were facing for a lot of their anti-shoplifting tactics. Many retailers also now use these integrated price tags, which are literally price tickets that contain a security tag. The cashier, when they ring you up, must use a special pad to deactivate them. And this is why when you leave a store, your purchase might set off the alarms at the door or set off alarms at other stores. Some retailers even use security tags that are sewn into the garment. These will look like a massive sewing label with the direction to cut it off. I'm superstitious about cutting off tags. I almost never do it. I don't know why. And let me tell you, Those things will reactivate themselves and set off alarms everywhere you go. So cut them out. Don't be weird like me. I'm thinking specifically of a denim jacket that caused me unnecessary turmoil for years until a Gap employee asked me if I'd ever cut out the tag and offered to do it for me. All of this stuff costs money and surely it prevents some theft. But the way retailers deal with shoplifting now is a lot different. In the early days of my personal experiences working retail, when a customer set off the front door alarm, and it was obvious that it wasn't one of those dumb integrated tags that hadn't been deactivated, we would take the person to the back of the store into the manager's office. We'd get them to dump their bag. Inevitably, we would find something and we would call the police. We would fill out a ton of paperwork. I mean, seriously, this whole operation might take hours, depending on when the police arrived. And it would mean that all of us would be working late to finish closing the store because no one was allowed to be in the office alone with a potential shoplifter. So they always had to bring another employee with them, pull them off the floor. And it had to be one female and one male because there had definitely been some accusations and, you know, possibly actually really gross, sexually abusive behaviors in the past. So We would be pulling two people off the sales floor who would be needed to ring up customers, let people in the fitting rooms, close the store. Now people couldn't take breaks. Everything was shorthanded. It was stressful. This would set up the whole rest of the day like a domino effect to just be miserable for everyone at work. The police would eventually arrive and they might take the suspected shoplifter downtown for booking or at the very least escort them out of the store. The suspected shoplifter would have to sign a piece of paper saying that they would never enter any stores that that company owned ever again. It's called trespassing them. And then meanwhile, my employer would actually file a civil suit 
against the suspected shoplifter for punitive damages. And those were usually a couple of thousand dollars, which, depending on the person's life circumstances, could really mess up their life and their credit for a while. That seems wildly out of proportion with the actual amount of product that was attempting to be stolen. In most cases at that time, it was usually just a couple of pair of thong underwear that maybe had marijuana leaves on it. I swear to God, so many marijuana leaf thongs stolen at that point. Those underwear probably cost the company, like a whole handful of them would cost the company less than $5. Meanwhile, this teenage girl is going to court and being sued for thousands of dollars. Over time, the police just stopped coming. Shoplifting just wasn't a big deal to them anymore. But we were still required to follow people around who seemed, quote, shady to bring suspected shoplifters to the back when we caught them to fill out that paperwork so the company could file the civil suit. Because guess what? The company made a lot of money off of those lawsuits. Like it was part of the operating budget, literally. It was a significant source of revenue and it basically paid the salaries of the corporate loss prevention team, among other things. More and more big retailers like Walmart have stopped pursuing people suspected of stealing under say $25 worth of product. Different companies have different thresholds because basically if it doesn't reach a level where it's a felony, these retailers feel like it's a waste of time and resources. I will say that while shoplifting seems like a victimless crime, after all, these companies can definitely afford to lose their inventory. They pay their workers poverty wages, and they generally don't give a fuck about the planet or its people. Why not take the things you need and know that you're sticking to them at the same time? It sounds great, right? I can see that, but let me tell you, having worked on the other side, having come from a long line of retail workers, no executive suffers any consequences from shoplifting, but retail workers get punished in many ways for high rates of shoplifting in the store. They 100% are to blame for it in the eyes of the employer. So this means smaller raises or no raises at all, because let me tell you, that shrink rate is part of your performance review and will deduct points and prevent you from being promotable, from getting a raise. And high shoplifting rates lead to more and more draconian procedures to reinforce that punishment of it's all your fault that this is happening. Like if your store's shrink is high, no matter where that loss is originating, the entire team bears that punishment. That means you might no longer be able to use the bathroom whenever you want. You might have to have a manager let you in and they will wait outside while you're in there just to ensure that you're not stealing. You might no longer be allowed to leave the store for breaks. You might have to do what I did at one job, which was take a really messed up test where the first question was, which of your coworkers is most likely to steal? And the second question was, if someone answered your name for the first question, why do you think they did that? That doesn't mess with your head at all, right? That doesn't create a culture of distrust and fear, does it? In the eyes of the retailer, shoplifting is the fault of the employees. If they just worked harder, didn't slack off so much, then stuff wouldn't be stolen. There are 
copious training sessions, often with former cops, that are essentially lessons in racial and class profiling of following, quote, shady or sketchy customers who, quote, don't look like they belong in your store, of following them around the store and talking to them until they give up and leave. And this is called enhanced customer service. One of the snarkiest terms I've ever heard. (laughs) And retailers believe that if shoplifting is really the major source of a store shrink, then someone, some one of the employees, maybe all of the employees must be involved. It must be an inside job. As if retail workers were just inviting their friends and family into the store to steal with abandon. I just want to take a moment here to reiterate that when you are working retail, you need that job to pay your rent, to eat, to survive, and you're not going to fuck it up by just inviting people in to steal. It's not worth it. Maybe here and there, there have been people who didn't care, who didn't need their job. I don't know, but everyone I worked with was one paycheck away from homelessness. And that brings me to the last cause of shrink, internal, meaning employee theft. This can range from stuffing your own backpack full of jeans or letting a friend use your discount. And retailers are obsessed with this because they're classist, because they're racist, because they assume that their own employees are so uneducated, so lower class, so unworthy that they just can't stop themselves from stealing at every turn. It's in their blood, their lower class retail worker blood. Well, you know where I stand on this. It's fucking classist bullshit. And everyone I worked with wouldn't have dreamt of stealing because one, they were good people. And two, they needed that job. And just as the penalties for shoplifters are wildly out of proportion with the actual value of the property stolen, so are the penalties for internal theft. Yes, of course, the employee will be immediately fired. And That could be punishment enough, right, in most cases. But they might also be added to an employee theft database. Yep, that's right. There are multiple companies out there building a massive industry, very profitable industry, by offering a database service that allows employers to search for prospective employees. The thing about these database services is that they aren't searching criminal convictions or even arrests. They're simply names added to the database by loss prevention managers, and they are often just cases of suspected theft. These databases are used by most of the dollar stores, CVS, lots of other retailers, and they can ruin a worker's life. Once again, this isn't a guilty beyond a reasonable doubt situation. It's a suspected situation. William Greenblatt is the chief executive of the background check company Sterling Infosystems, a company that makes its money off of helping companies background check prospective employees. And he told the New York Times, quote, that is not a product that we sell because I think it's a product fraught with risk and inefficiency. Kyra Moore a retail worker, shared her story with the New York Times. When she was a CVS employee, she was accused of stealing. The entry about her in the retail theft database called Esteem said that she, quote, picked up socks, 
left them at the checkout, and never came back to buy them. Which um, doesn't sound like stealing to me. When she later applied for a job at Rite Aid, she was deemed non-competitive, meaning she couldn't be hired. These databases essentially function as a blacklist, destroying people's ability to work and support themselves. Furthermore, a lot of these retailers will also sue any employee suspected of theft for civil damages, just like the shoplifters. I had a friend who let one of his friends use his employee discount on a pair of jeans. They were diesel jeans, which at that time were very fancy and desirable. It really speaks to the era in which this happened. And the company probably lost, I don't know, $60 on the whole thing. My friend was fired. Okay, fine. That was a violation of company policy. And then he was sued for more than $6,000 in damages, which, of course, he had to pay. That essentially ruined his credit for years because, hi, he was working retail and didn't have $6,000 hanging around. It totally went into collections. And it made it impossible for him to find an apartment and get a loan for a car, among other things. That punishment seems to outweigh the crime, right? Stopping internal theft is an obsession, and retailers spend all kinds of money trying to stop it. We just talked about the database. I mean, it's funny to think about all of the industries that pop up to cater to retailers, I don't know, lack of trust in their employees. We talked about the mystery shopping industry more than a billion dollars every year. We've got these databases, but there's also a wide range of personality tests and so-called integrity tests that are used as part of the hiring process. These tests are taken upon applying before you actually get hired. And while the personality tests might just be a measure of how long you might stick around, how great of a team player you are, how obedient you are. All this stuff is, you know, crunched up in the algorithm and a verdict about your viability as an employee is spit out. Okay, that's not exactly how it works. But yes, algorithms will tell an employer whether you seem like a good hire or not. The integrity tests are specifically designed to figure out the likelihood that a potential hire might steal with scintillating questions like, If you knew you could sneak into a movie without getting caught, would you? And if you knew your mother had stolen $1 worth of product from a store, would you call the police? These are tests that I have taken and administered. Dylan, my child, has been applying for a bunch of different jobs recently, and they sent me a screenshot of a question from one of these tests that they were taking. And the question was, do you ever feel like an imposter? Which... I don't know about you, but I'm raising both hands for that one. Does that make me unhirable? These tests are ridiculous. Failing either of these tests means that you will not be hired. Even if you have all of the experience, the interview was great, you have great references, you will still not be hired. Even though these tests have been proven time and time again to be challenging for individuals with learning disabilities and neurodiverse people, these tests also have questions that very clearly screen out candidates with mental illness, 
which is illegal. I mean, think of the retailer's side of this. Let's just put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. I know, by this point, we're like, why would we do it? But let's adopt their logic here. If you're classist and racist enough to think that retail workers in general are more prone to theft, they can't help it, they're born that way, then you probably also think people with mental illness or reading comprehension challenges are also prone to theft. Because you're an asshole, and that's how asshole logic works. Okay, let's get back out of the retailer's shoes, because that was a brutal 30 seconds there, and I didn't like it. Let's recap where we are now. Retailers have no respect for their employees. They assume that they are going to steal at any moment, and they certainly aren't going to do a good job at their job or caring for customers. The retailers don't offer their workers opportunities to grow their careers. They don't even offer them an outlet for discussing issues of discrimination and abuse in the workplace. And they think that free appetizers... (laughs) are more appealing to their workers than, you know, full-time hours, consistent scheduling, a living wage, health insurance, and PTO. Okay, so we got it there. Retailers, they don't think very highly of their workers. But why do customers have so little respect for retail employees? Because I can tell you that, yes, there are fine, polite, respectful customers. I'm sure you're one of them. And then there are total jerk store jerks who talk down to you, touch your hair, touch you in general, scream at you, freak out over lack of inventory or a long line or a sale being over. Maybe they hit you with a bag of curtains. That happened to me. And you know what? It sucks. It wears you down. You know that your employer thinks you're a disposable, a nobody, useless, unworthy of trust. And so do the customers. Read any article about working retail and the comments section will be filled with stories of customer abuse, of both experiencing it firsthand and witnessing it. We all know that retail workers are at the receiving end of a lot of cruelty, but why? I mean, we know there is a lot of classism at play here. There is a lot of racism at play here, whether we're conscious of it or not. We look at people working retail and we think to ourselves, They're at the bottom. They are inferior to me. That's a major part of it. I mean, we have to unpack that. If you've only learned one thing from listening to Close Horse, which, wow, you've put a lot of hours into this. (laughs) Um, I hope that you've learned that retail workers are just as human as you, that all workers are just as human as you, that we're all workers and we're all valuable humans and you're working on dismantling the biases you have towards other humans out there. But still, in general, we're all kind of obsessed with like, why why is it so bad for retail workers? Because it seems like, take the pandemic out of the equation, it was getting worse and worse even before that. And then the pandemic just made it a nightmare. A University of British Columbia Souter School of Business Study, which was published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology, tried to get to the bottom of this. It looked at several factors to determine how customers treated employees. Ultimately, the study found that people treat retail workers worse when they themselves are looking for bargains, which does, in a really weird way, make sense. I read another study that said that 
customers would prefer that retail workers dress formally on the job and that they would treat them with more respect. So there is, I mean, this is all classism at play, right? But there is something about bargain shopping that gives us a sense of entitlement that maybe we shouldn't have, that because something is cheap, we can be worse about it. I don't I don't understand it either. I would think if you spent a lot of money on something, you would be like, now I'm definitely right. But there is a weird psychology about like, it's cheap, so I get to act out. And that's terrifying when you consider that deals, deals, deals is the way of the world in 2021. And it has been for quite some time. Johann Borgerhausen, totally blew that name, I'm sure, is a Souter PhD student who co-authored the study. And he said, quote, when shoppers focus on paying the lowest price, they become less attuned to understanding the human needs of others or even recognizing them. It's like we enter this trance of deals and we are unable to process anything else around us. This study specifically focused on airlines. Lufthansa is a more premium or at the very least more expensive airline. And Ryanair is a cheapo airline that years ago had a few days of headlines out there on the interwebs about their proposal to charge to use the toilets on flights. Why did they want to do that? Because they wanted to reduce the number of lavatories on a plane and add more seats in their place. And they figured that people would be less likely to use the bathroom if they had to pay to use them. So yeah, a majorly bargain airline. And theoretically, if you're buying a plane ticket from Ryanair, you're more budget conscious than the Lufthansa customer. At the very least, you're going into this airfare purchase situation with a different mindset. Study participants were either shown photos of a flight attendant wearing uniforms from Ryanair, the budget airline, Lufthansa, the premium airline, or one wearing a neutral uniform that didn't convey any specific airline. The researchers found that the respondents saw the flight attendants from Lufthansa and the neutral uniform as relatively equally human. But the Ryanair employees were seen in a poorer light. Quote, we simply varied the brand and found that people ascribed lower capabilities for experiencing emotions and feelings to the Ryanair flight attendant, dehumanizing the Ryanair flight attendant, the discount airline. Borgerhausen, the student, the PhD student that I quoted earlier said, quote, I think most consumers, myself included, are guilty of this at some point. When you really drill down, you don't really recognize that someone is fully human anymore. It doesn't take much to be human and to let others know you recognize them as human. Everyone has the right to be considered human. Amen. (laughs) Other research has indicated, very unsurprisingly, that employees who experience rude and inconsiderate customer behaviors report higher levels of emotional exhaustion, job dissatisfaction, burnout, and just general misery. These retail employees are feeling like crap, and then they go out to other businesses and engage in rude and dehumanizing behavior towards those employees. And so the cycle continues and continues. I know the phrase hurt people, hurt people is like a live, laugh, love of millennial Instagram, but there's a kernel of truth there. Heck, 
even live, laugh, love has a kernel of truth because, you know, laughing and loving are parts of a life well lived. But being hurt at work and then hurting others, that's the name of the game here. Our employers destroy our self-esteem. They push us into a space of desperation. And someone out there, often a stranger, gets to experience the repercussions of our feelings. We have to stop dehumanizing one another. Retail workers, strangers on social media, people in line ahead of us at the store, we're all in this together. And we have a lot of things stacked against us. Climate change, the pandemic, a wide variety of political and economic systems that are antiquated, discriminatory, and inequitable. All the classics there. We will never change any of this, never make the world better if we aren't working together. It's time to take a deep breath, to take a step back, and look at what's really wrong in our lives and our world. It's not the person at Target who asks you to wear a mask. It's not the cashier who said they can't do a return without a receipt. It's not the fitting room attendant who said, sorry, the maximum is five items at a time. Nothing will change if the working class, that's all of us, doesn't work together to dismantle the systems of oppression that are dehumanizing all of us. Fighting one another on Instagram won't help. Being impossible with a server at a restaurant will not help. And screaming at someone at Costco definitely won't help because all this does is hold us all back. It's a waste of energy, both yours and the other person, the recipient of your cruelty. We should be supporting and lifting one another up, not venting our frustrations on one another. It's all a distraction from the real villains of it all, greed and hate. I know that this is starting to sound a little live, laugh, love, but we will never, ever change a thing if we're all fighting and being jerks to one another. I'm ready to do better, and I hope you're along for this ride because I need you to be a part of it. We all need you to be a part of it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Like I always say, if you liked this podcast, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. And if you like the work I'm doing here and you want to support my ability to continue doing it, please consider supporting me via Patreon. You'll find out more at patreon.com slash podcast, or you can send a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, the department. We're talking about all kinds of cool shit over there. And thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.